Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13. When time permits, we go into the Proverbs, a few Proverbs to start uh, our morning. So we're going to be starting in Proverbs uh, 6, starting with verse 1, 1 through 5. It says, My son, if you become surety for your friend, or a guarantee, or collateral, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your own mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And what is he saying here? He's saying that, you know, don't carelessly become surety or security, or a cosigner on a loan. We could look at this in a lot of different ways. And if you have, if you've done this foolishly, if you haven't given it much thought, given it much prayer, thought of the ramifications of it, try to get out of it before it's too late. Now, there's a balance in life. We certainly want to help people, but at the same time, as believers, we also need to be discerning, okay? Um, and I go take this a little bit further and say, don't even give a character reference unless you've prayed about it. Because you're giving, after your salvation, you have your integrity, your integrity and your character. Do you want to give that away so quickly? So that's something to pray about. Or let somebody use your name. And I, I've been on kind of both sides of this. You know, sometimes I've done it quickly and without thinking, and uh, it's hurt me. And then there's other times where I've really prayed about it, and uh, I've done it, and it's been a blessing. And it really helped somebody to get a start in life. So this is something that the Bible takes very seriously. And today we're going to see someone else of bad character, the Antichrist, the coming ruler, the dictator, who the world is going to give their blessing to. They're going to give their, their name, their, you know, their, whatever they have, they're going to say, this is the man that I endorse. And we're going to talk about that. Now the last time we talked about the imagery and symbolism of the woman in Revelation 12 and the dragon and the war in heaven. And again, as you're reading it, you can't help but get a picture in your mind of these angels fighting and you know the bad guys are losing and they're cast down. Pretty impressive stuff. And today, we're going to read about, well, let me read an article from a typical news day on cable news. Let's see. Israel hits the second United Nations school. So Israel and Hamas are at war. And um, actually, both sides say, they told the UN, we don't want a truce, we want to keep fighting. And then Hezbollah got involved from southern Lebanon and threw a few more rockets into Israel, furthering this incursion. We don't know where it's going to end. Pakistan and India, two nuclear nations, tension on the border, two nuclear nations. They want peace, but you know what? All it takes is a little spark. And if you know your history, it was only a spark that started World War I and then precipitated World War II. And because Pakistan has pulled their, a lot of their troops away from the Afghani border, the Taliban is resurging. So now we have a problem that's bigger in Afghanistan that we have to deal with. And we know that Iran and Syria are funding terrorism. Okay, They're using a lot of their money to undermine what we're doing in Iraq, blow up American troops, send money over to Hezbollah and Hamas to fight against Israel. That's a problem. We know that Israel has already, already struck Syria. Okay, that was last year. It wasn't that long ago on their own turf. Iraq, who's going to save the world? Who's going to make world peace? 
Commissioner Gordon, why don't you put up the bat signal on the top of the building? <laughs> oh, that's right, he's a fictional character. Well, what about the Christians? What, they talk about this Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's going to come back, and the war set up a millennial kingdom. Yeah, but he, they've been saying that for 2,000 years. Who is the one? We need somebody right now. Somebody right now to solve the world's problems. Well, who's that going to be? I'll tell you who it's going to be. Chapter 13, verse 1. And I, John, stood on the sands of the sea and looked, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, and he had seven heads and ten horns and crowns upon those horns, and he had a blasphemous name. The world is looking for a leader, and they're going to get their leader. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The Antichrist, the coming world dictator, he's going to come in peace, and it's going to be successful, and he's going to lull the world into a false sense of security, and then he's going to strike. He's going to have charisma, confidence, he's going to be flawless, intelligent, a problem solver, and a troubleshooter. And as we'll see, he'll be empowered by the dragon, or Satan, 6,000 years or more of studying human history and wars, and this man will be a master manipulator and liar. In contrast, the Bible calls him the son of perdition, the man of sin, the prince to come, the false messiah, the beast, a liar, a manipulator, and an anti-Semite. It's kind of funny because there are things that the Bible has already predicted in today's world, and the world community scoffs at it. So this guy is going to come to the scene, and the church is going to be, church is going to be raptured, I believe, prior to that. And those tribulation saints are going to nudge one another and say, you know, left behind. Somebody left the Bible. They started reading it. Hey, that leader of the world, man, is striking resemblance to the Bible. And probably that leader may say, oh, yeah, the Christians say I'm the Antichrist. Isn't that funny? Scoffing at the Christians. You see that today. The question is, is he alive today? I believe so. But many Bible commentators say that Satan has already had his man waiting in the wings the disciple John says that there were many antichrists to come, and then the final antichrist. Antichrist could mean against Christ, but in the Greek, it also means an in place of Christ. This is the world's Messiah that they're looking for. Today we're going to talk about the political beast, because there's two beasts in Revelation 13, the antichrist. The next Sunday we're going to talk about the second beast, which is his false prophet or propaganda minister. Verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, this is the Apostle John, and they saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, we saw in the last chapter this picture of the woman in the heavens, and of course it wasn't an actual woman, but it was symbolic of something that was deeper, and the same thing here. This beast that's described, if you were here last Sunday, is similar description to the dragon in chapter 12. Why? Because the dragon empowers the beast. Satan empowers this antichrist. Remember what I said about counterfeits? This is a book of hope, but it's also a book prior to that hope of a lot of counterfeits. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, he said, I come to do the will of my father. The words of, the, of my father are the ones that I speak. Now, here's a counterfeit going on. The Antichrist will be doing the will of his father, who's Satan. Satan will be empowering this man to do these incredible things. We're going to go into a deeper description in Revelation 17, so I'm not going to go very deep here. Each 
time we go further into the book of Revelation, we're going to talk more about this Antichrist. Number one, out of the sea. Well, at the time, the Apostle John was confined to the island of Patmos, which was in the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea was surrounded by Gentile nations. So he could have been literally saw this beast coming out of the sea, or more specifically, a sea of peoples, of Gentiles. He had ten horns, right? This is synonymous with Daniel chapter 7, if you're familiar with that scripture. And in Daniel chapter 2, remember the vision of the metal man. Um, there was this vision, and, and the man was, had a, a head of gold and a, arms of chest of silver and a thigh and belly of bronze and legs of iron and the ten toes. And the ten toes were mixed with iron and clay. And basically that was a descriptor, one of the descriptors of the coming Gentile kingdoms that would take over the world. Now, the ten toes are a picture of the coming nation that hasn't happened yet, but is yet future from us, this ten-nation European federation. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. This is a picture of the revived Roman Empire. The vision in Daniel chapter 7 was a vision of both of the legs were of iron, which was a symbol of the Roman Empire, the last empire that had split into two. It became Western Rome, and it became Eastern Byzantium. And Byzantium was destroyed by the, I believe it was the Turks in the 15th century. And then the ten toes are the kingdoms that still has to come, but it is a revived Roman Empire. As I go through this, it's going to make more sense. So what's very interesting is, well, what's this thing about Europe? What's your issue with Europe? Well, in 1993, something very interesting happened, if you were paying attention. It was the Maastricht Treaty. And the Maastricht Treaty, okay, in our day, in 1993, gave really birth to the European Union. They called it the United States of Europe, or the Europe, European Union, as sort of a counter to the United States. To get together, the euro, the money was changed. There's a, they're still fine-tuning it, but there's a, um, you know, a conglomeration, you know, getting together this federation of European states. And again, this has only been plausible in the last 15 years. The horns and the crowns on the beast, again, the Old Testament, the New Testament... Where do I get this from? It's, it's a common theme in Scripture. Scripture repeats itself. The horns and the crowns further bolster the idea of dominion. The Antichrist will be the ruler of this ten-nation federation and hence rule the world from his power base in Europe. And three, the seven heads. We're going to get to that later in chapter 17. The seven heads of this beast are the seven hills. Rome has a big part to play in this, both spiritually and politically. And the blasphemous name. I want to read... 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, three, two verses. Paul speaks this. He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, the great apostasy, and the man of sin, the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, sometimes in the scripture it's, it's vague where you don't understand it. Listen, there, there's no vagueness here. He wants to be God. We know that the Bible says when Satan rebelled, when Lucifer rebelled, he said, I will ascend to the heavens. I will be like the Most High. And here he has his chance. Um, by proxy, he gets to have the world worship him. I'm God, worship me is basically the attitude. Now that's blasphemy. Blasphemy is for anyone else to receive worship except for God himself. Verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. 
and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. Goes back to Daniel chapter 7 again. There were two visions. One was a dream, one was a vision. The one was the metal man, basically the future coming kingdoms, oh, let's see, 2,500 years ago that would dominate the world, dominate starting with Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. So the metal man was a picture of the different kingdoms. The next picture were the different animals, signifying a little bit more depth or descriptors of the coming Gentile kingdoms. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel the prophet was looking forward in history. Here, John is looking back. So you see the order is reversed. But this is what we have, these pagan nations. Speed, leopard, the leopard with four wings. Um, the leopard was a picture of the Grecian Empire, how quickly it conquered the world, Alexander the Great. And in the four wings, when Alexander the Great died, he didn't have a male heir, so he left four generals. I believe it was Ptolemy, Seleucus, uh, Cassiander, and Lysimachus. So these four generals took over the known world, okay? but the world was taken over with, with, with speed, speed of a leopard. The ferocity of a bear, going back before the Greeks, were the, uh, the Medo-Persians. They gathered together. If you remember the vision, now this all happened before history. It was so accurate that a lot of naysayers said that book of Daniel had to be written after all these kingdoms took place, because there's nobody, anybody could have known this with such great detail. But again, they, did, they discounted God. So the, the uh, Medo-Persian kingdom was a vision of a bear that was kind of cocked to one side because the Persians were more mightier than, the, than media, but they did gather together, and the bear had three ribs in his mouth that he crushed. So the ferocity of the Medo-Persian empire. And prior to that were the Babylonians, which was a picture of the lion, royalty, uh, grandeur, pomp, splendor. So this is what you have here, looking backwards. And the Antichrist will have elements of all these kingdoms and the terrible beast, okay? Now, the dragon gave, the Bible says. There's a cliche that says a person sold their soul to the devil. Now, that's a little bit of a misnomer because some have a vision of Satan ruling hell, and basically, if you befriend him, he can, you can rule with him in hell. But hell is a place for punishment, eternal punishment. Satan will be eternally punished. And the Bible says initially that hell was reserved for the devil and his rebellious angels. However, people choose to go there when they reject Christ as their way of salvation. So selling your soul to the devil, in a sense, you can make a deal with Satan. I believe anybody can do this. They can cry out to him and reject God and say, I want it all now. I don't really ha care what happens when I die. And Satan will allow you, you know, you'll lose those chances to be with God, in a sense, if that's who you're making your deal with, and you'll be allowed to get whatever you want on this world in a material sense, and then when you die, you forfeit your soul which is a problem. But many folks can sell their souls for pleasures in this life, to get a leg up in the world, so to speak. I've actually talked to some folks that have said, you know what, I just want it all now. I don't really care if I burn forever in eternity. That's pretty uh, myopic, pretty short-sighted. Unscrupulous practices for success, right? Um, maybe, listen, all of us here know that there are things that we won't have in this life. I mean, you, I won't ever have a helicopter, okay? I like to think helicopters are cool, but I'll never own one. I'm settled with that. And there's things that we all can, can bring to our minds that maybe we might want, but we know we'll never have. But some will unscrupulously do things in their business practices or hurt other people for a leg up, in a sense, selling their souls. Losing integrity for a fleeting fleshly benefit now. Jesus said, what does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? 
That's a good uh, point to, to think about. Even Christians. Sometimes Christians, you know, we have an opportunity to get something, a fleshly benefit. Or we could keep our integrity and keep our witness so that people see that we are a Christian and what we say, we also do. Or we can try to get that fleshly benefit and kind of ruin our witness. So in a sense, Christians can do things that feed their flesh and really probably make Satan happy. Is it worth it? Verse 3. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now some say that, I tell you, when you really get into prophecy, you, you really can lose yourself in, in the scriptures because there's just so many different scriptures that tie in and um, you really have to meditate and concentrate on it. But some, some Bible commentators say that the deadly wound that was healed was that the Roman Empire really kind of disintegrated upon itself and it was lost forever, except that it'll be revived in probably our lifetime, I'm, I'm guessing, I believe that, and that that was the deadly wound that was healed. However, I believe that it's more specific. I do believe in a general Roman Empire it falls, it's revived again, but I think that it, it goes a little bit deeper. I believe, and other Bible commentators believe, that this deadly wound to the beast was an assassination attempt that failed. It was a head wound. And there was a counterfeit, that word again, resurrection. Everything that Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit does Satan and his hordes try to make a, a cheap counterfeit. So this is a, a way for the world to see. They, they didn't accept Jesus' resurrection, but they'll, re they'll receive this antichrist, this beast resurrection. Zechariah 11:17 does seem to indicate that the antichrist will suffer some type of permanent ambulatory loss of his right eye and his right hand, but he will live. Um, he will be successful even though uh, somebody tried to kill him. The Antichrist's apparent resurrection bolsters his power and authority. His public opinion polls, Zogby and all those, will probably put him at well over 90%. Because why? The world marvels. Everyone loves a hero. Everyone loves a winner. Even Americans. We love to see the success story of a hero or a winner, don't we? If you're, <laughs> I'm not going to get into the, the Giants-Eagles thing. <laughs> I'm not going there. I don't have a, a horse in this race. That's Pastor Anthony's uh, purview. But everyone loves a winter, winner. If your team is winning, 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 you're excited. There's a little bit of a euphoria about that, right? I see some eagles, some giants, so I'm not getting into it. So I'll just leave it with everybody loves a winner, okay? And this guy certainly comes off as one. As a result, the world will worship the dragon. They'll worship Satan. Well, who gave the beast his power? We want to worship him. Jesus says, I come in my Father's name and you don't follow after me, but one will come in his own name and you will follow after him. You see this great dichotomy between good and evil happening here. So they worship the dragon because the carnal worship power. Sometimes Christians can get, listen, you know, I've said this before, from the pulpit, you could pick on the Muslims or the Jews or the atheists or the Catholics or whatever. Honestly, I think that we need to clean our house first. So many times during the, the sermons, I'll just talk about what Christians get caught up in. And some Christians do get caught up in that. Success is good, but to the, to the point of it's, it's obsessive, okay? To the point that it's way high-minded. So that, that's a problem. 
Now, the carnal worship power. Psychologically, for security and popularity, let's think about this Antichrist and what a, a great leader the world will see him as. Many follow a strong leader and will even tolerate that leader's evil acts. Even victims. You ever hear of Stockholm Syndrome? Anybody ever hear of Stockholm Syndrome? Okay, so me and my terrorist group, we kidnap Dan over there, we take him with him, we blindfold him, handcuff him, and um, his family, the government, can't secure his release. We're too strong, we're too good at, at eluding. And what happens is over time, weeks, we take the blindfold off, the handcuffs, we talk to him, we tell him about our cause, and how everybody else is wrong, but we're right. Eventually, we go to release Dan, and Dan doesn't want to leave. He becomes part of us. Because for, for, it's all, listen, I like to study how people think. And not the humanistic psychology, but how the mind works, how people think. So Dan here now becomes part of our posse because he sees us as strong and he sees security within us. Remember, how many people remember Patty Hearst? She was kidnapped at 19, an heiress, by the Symbionese Liberation Army. And what happened? Sometime later, they had pictures of her with a fully automatic weapon holding up a bank. She became part of that group. So that's Stockholm Syndrome, but let's go back to this. What's even more tragic is in Christian circles. We can get caught up sometimes in Christians' popularity, leadership, strength, and we get drawn to that. But we have to remember, we need to follow Jesus. Who do you follow? Who are your friends? Are your friends good examples? Those are important questions to ask. It's common for some not to forsake carnal cliques because they're afraid that they may be the object of scorn themselves when they leave that group or lose social status. I would just encourage you, don't be a follower. If you're following anybody, make sure that person is following Jesus, okay? Not because of popularity or any other reason. So the question is, who is able to make war with the beast? There's a feeling of security to follow an unbeatable leader, and the world will follow this man. They'll have that glazed-over look. If you ever met someone or talked to somebody who's involved in a cult, you could tell them the truth, you could make good points, and they just kind of look at you, and they have that glazed over look. And you're going to see a system that's both political and religious that's going to hook the world. And the tribulation saints, will, they may not make a lot of headway, they're going to be persecuted, they're going to be killed, they're going to be in the way of the world's progress, because who's able to make war with this guy? How could you even say a bad thing about our leader? It's pretty bad stuff. Verse 5. And he was able, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. There's that three and a half years again. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. See that three and a half year period again. We saw the, again, the great tribu the tribulation, the seven year period is divided into three and a half and three and a half. There's the tribulation and the great tribulation. We see three and a half years with uh, the, the Antichrist power. We see the three and a half years with the witnesses. We see the uh, three and a half years with the, the Gentiles trotting over the outer court of, of the new temple and so on and so, so forth. So we keep seeing this, this theme come up again. In Daniel chapter 7, I tell you, maybe you read it when you go home, but it gives even more insight of, of the Antichrist. They call him the little horn, the little power that rises up and starts to devour other powers. And he speaks great words, haughty words, pompous words, insolent words towards God. Now, Europe, or let me go back for a minute. 
The word blaspheme, blaspheme is actually a Greek word, blasphemia. When you break it up into its component parts, it means literally harsh speech. So there's harsh speech against God and against his followers. Now, European polls, you can Google any of this stuff, European polls uh, on Christianity or faith. The, the polls show that the Europeans are ahead of us in, in progress, and I say that facetiously. They're becoming increasingly secular as, as, a, as an area, as a region. And many ridicule America's faith. They look at us as we're backwards. They're still caught up in that religious stuff. And Americans are an obstacle to world harmony because we oppose um, injustices in the world. We oppose abortion. We oppose some of the progression that the world is leading to. And, and we cling to our faith. But the European polls show that they look at Americans almost as if we're backwards. So they're ahead of us in progress, so to speak. Now, the Antichrist will ridicule God and his followers as out of step with world progress. And he'll, get, he'll marginalize any Christians, tribulation saints who are left. They'll be marginalized, ridiculed, and persecuted. That's how you, you persecute people. You, you talk about them, and then you marginalize them and make them look like the whole world is here and they're completely a hindrance, and then you attack them. That's how you persecute someone. What's equally blasphemous, actually, is a few things. If you deny the resurrection. Remember the last time we took communion, I was talking about the resurrection, because when we take the, you know, the cup and the bread, what do we do? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. He spoke about his coming again. I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until I come in my coming kingdom, right? So, What's the sense in being a church if we don't believe in the resurrection? See, Jesus died and then he rose again. And Jesus said he will come again. And we need to believe in that as often as we take that communion. So I believe it's blasphemy to say that we're Christian and not believe the resurrection. And there's some that do. Not believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. If that's the case, then what does it matter? We're all going to the same place. And Jesus wasted his time coming here. What did he die for our sins for? It doesn't make any sense. It's blasphemy to believe. It's harsh speech against God because this was God's plan, remember? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they had this plan to redeem mankind. And if we don't believe that the blood of Christ is the only way to salvation and any road can lead to heaven, it's harsh speech against God, isn't it? Blasphemy. Now, it says that the, the beast was given and was allowed. In Greek um, language, that's the Greek passive word. He, he's receiving these things. God allows these things for a time, but then there'll be a fever pitch of, of the insanity and the evil on the world, and then Jesus will come back on that white horse with his saints following him and subdue the nations and lead with a rod of, uh, with a rod of iron. And some may say, well, why does God allow? Why does God allow? I believe that a lot of things that happen are really a result of man's free will and man's choice. Because if you think about it, God doesn't allow complete anarchy. You know, we're able to be secure in this church right now without, you know, people coming in. And even in other countries, it happens, but it's not every day. So God does put a limiter on what can happen. Because I think if God completely released his hands, the whole world would be like a Mad Max movie. Remember those movies like 30 years ago? It would be crazy. Verse 7. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So this Antichrist, this beast, this political leader will have so much power that he'll be able to persecute anyone who believes in Jesus, who's trusted him for their salvation, and the world will just kind of stand by and be powerless. I believe it was in 1938, Adolf Hitler uh, collected all the guns from German citizens. 
From that point on, they couldn't resist him. When he grew in power, there was nothing they could do. Now, a lot of them were mesmerized and swooned, and it was their own sin. But the government had control over the people. And this guy will have total control over the world system. Now, some believe that the church is still here. Maybe the mid-trib rapture or the post-trib rapture. But this can't be the church. Because Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church that I founded. But here, we see that the beast prevails over the saints. Now, some may argue, well, there's the Roman persecution, right, many years ago, and there's even in communist countries, in certain countries, there's persecution against Christians. So isn't that the prevailing against the saints? Now, I would say no. I would agree with Tertullian, who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And over the last two millennia, Rome disappeared. Rome imploded. But Christianity grew. So what effect did the Roman persecution have on Christianity? If anything, it helped it grow. Right? Same thing around the world. Uh, as these countries persecute Christians, they're dismayed to find out, the governments, that the Christianity is growing. Iran and certain countries, North Korea, are actively seeking to find home Bible studies and destroy them. Like they don't have better things to do. They can't stop it. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But here, in this time period, however, the Antichrist will have control and will prevail over the tribulation saints. Now, I'm going to go out on the ledge here. Take it for what it's worth. It's my opinion. I believe that when the last tribulation martyr is killed, it will coincide with the Lord's returning. Now, I know there's a time issue here, and you could actually count the seven years to the point where the Lord will actually come back. But I believe that it'll just coincide with that last tribulation martyr, the last one who will come to Christ will be killed, and that will coincide with Christ's return. Verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. The Lamb's book of life. We've talked about the book before, and the, and the books were open, and, and you know, if we've trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior, they look up, you know, God just knows. Your, book, your name is in that book of life, right? The book of the life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, Christ's plan. So if you believe that Jesus shed his blood for you, died for your sins, you are in that Lamb's book of life. You don't have to question it. You don't have to guess. You're in there. And, and how do I know this? I believe that it's clear that God's election, how he chooses us, is closely related, if not predicated upon his foreknowledge or his omniscience. Some may say, well, you know, I've heard these arguments, free will versus, um, you know, I, I, do I choose God or does he choose me? And if he chooses me, how do I know if I'm chosen? And, you know, that's a study for theo theologians. The bottom line is you hear the word of God. The Bible says that the word of God is regenerative. As you're reading, as we're reading, it, there's something going on inside of you, spiritual. And when you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you believe that these words are true, well, I just read something. You know, I could read something and, and nothing happens, but God's word is regenerative. Then you make that decision. You say, yes, I want to trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and boom, it, it's a done deal. Now, some may ask me, but what about, <laughs> what about choosing versus God's election? Well, I've heard the illustration, I'm going to embellish a little bit here, but you know, it's almost like if you're going through life, you're going through a hallway and there's a whole bunch of doors, there's a lot of choices, 
there's success, there's, um, there's children, there's marriage, there's integrity, there's sin, there's addictions, there's so many doors. And there's one door, it's like stands out from all the rest of them. And it says, it's got like a crown on it, and it says, you know, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And you go, you know what? That's the path I want to take. And you open that door. And as you walk through the door, you close it. And notice on the back of it, it says, God's election. He chose you. It's a good illustration. I didn't come up with it. But, you know, it's almost as if we say to God, but, but God, I chose you. God says, I know, but I elected you. Yeah, but I made that choice. Yeah, but I knew you were going to make that choice. <laughs> you know? So don't worry about, am I, am I the elect and, or am I, am I not? Just choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's what the Bible says to do that. The Bible says that, God says that if you seek me with a whole heart, with your whole heart, you will find me. And that's a call to anyone. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus often said that. Do we have ears to hear today? This applies to anyone. Are we hearing what the Bible is saying to us? Are we, are we using God's word to apply it to our lives? Um, on the bulletin, I had it printed out on the back, and it's been there for some time, where you take your notes on the bottom. It says, how can I apply God's word to my life this week? You know, and that's a really a good section to not only to hear, but to hear with spiritual ears, to hear, to take it in, and to apply it to our lives. That's important. There's a big gap between John chapter 3 sometimes where we, uh, you know, we, we receive Christ and then sometimes with John chapter 12 where we die to ourselves and truly live that godly life. Sometimes it's a small gap in time, sometimes it's a larger gap in time. In verse 10 is an interesting portion here. It says, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now, when you first read it, it almost looks like the worldly term, what goes around, comes around. If you kill with the sword, you're going to be killed. If you lead into captivity, you're going to go into captivity. This is one of the actual few times that in the Greek, it's really hard to understand. And, and Bible commentators are a little divided on this. You see, the, the English language is superfluous. We have many words. We have redundancies of words. We have connecting words and filling words that help us, in, in our sense, make English a flowing language. But when we take another subject, maybe Spanish or Greek or another language, um, the Greeks understand each other, but we, in the study Bibles, you'll have all the words, and then a few times you'll see it italicized words. And those are the words that we add in the English. They're, they're implied, okay, or they're contextual, that help the sentence flow better. So this portion of Scripture is a little difficult. Again, it could mean what goes around comes around in a sense, but it also could mean that those who are destined for the sword were going to be killed with the sword. And those who are destined for captivity will be in captivity. Here is the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, this makes better sense from a Christian perspective because this is the chance, Christian, tribulation saint. You're going through this. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be imprisoned. This is your chance to really show your, your patience, your endurance, and your trust of the Lord. The bottom line is this last section shows a dichotomy between those who follow Christ and those who follow the Antichrist. There is no third choice. Yeah, but I want a third choice. I don't want to follow either. By default, you go with the Antichrist if you don't choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's just the way it is. In John chapter 5, again, Jesus said to the religious leaders, I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. But one is coming. If another comes in his own name, you will follow him. And the decision is clear for everyone. We're either part of the world system and we're an earth dweller, 
It's all about the earth. It's all about the here and now. It's all about save the earth, this, that, and the other thing. We're an earth dweller. And the Antichrist and the dragon will become our leader if we, if we reject Christ. Or we can be part of the celestial realm. The Bible talks about us being pilgrims, passing through this life, belonging to Christ. And our names are written in the book of life. So our names are in the book of life or our names are not in the book of life. There's no middle ground. The question is, where do you desire to fit in? Let's pray. Father in